Luke 12, verses 35-48. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to have been broken into. You too be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing the parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Matthew 24, verses 42 through 51. Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would, have allowed, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour, which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is a very solemn warning that is being spoken from our Lord's lips, one that we so desperately need to pay attention to. I pray that you would give us focus this morning as we study your word together. We pray, Father, that By your sovereign grace, you would draw the lost unto yourself. Grant them eyes to see. Grant them ears to hear the warning and heed it. And give them a love for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ready or not, here I come. 
I'm sure we're all familiar with those words. How many of us didn't play hide-and-go-seek when we were kids? You remember how it went. The seeker would go to a place and start counting down from some predetermined number while everyone else rushed off to certain hiding places. And as they approached that zero, and as they came to zero, after that they would call out, ready or not, here I come. Were you ever one of those that was still looking for a spot when that got announced? And you're feverishly looking for anything. You're hiding behind things that you couldn't really hide behind, but you're still just yearning for some place to hide. Certainly the consequences of being found just meant that you became the new seeker, right? And now you were the one that got to count down and say, ready or not, here I come. But what if the consequences for not being ready were much more severe? What if unpreparedness meant being placed in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth? What if failure to act in accordance with the will of the one coming meant being cut in two and beaten? What if what if uh, you were responsible whether you knew it or not? And what if your failure to heed the warning just super added judgment to yourself? Suddenly, being ready becomes a much bigger deal. One that carries with it eternal consequences. And that's the point that Jesus is making in this passage before us this morning. Because, ready or not, here he comes. There are other matters that you can neglect, but this one cannot be relegated to lesser importance. Here's the question before us this morning. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Your answer to that question means the difference between everlasting life and everlasting destruction. Are you ready for Jesus's return? We're considering the life and ministry of Jesus, as I mentioned in a kind of roughly chronological order through the Gospels, as it's recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we come to Luke chapter 12, we're hearing Jesus teach his disciples in the midst of thousands of people. We're told in Luke 12, 1, that, that there's thousands that were just even stepping on one another. There's so many people gathered around Jesus. Jesus at this point is about six months before his crucifixion. These are his final months of ministry. And there are crowds gathered all around him, and he's spending his ministry time now in and around Jerusalem and Judea and Perea. So he's near to Jerusalem, headquarters of those very religious leaders who want to see him dead. Much of what Jesus said on this occasion is found in the other Gospels at various other times in Jesus' ministry. And from a harmonization standpoint, it's either that one of the Gospel writers has has grouped some of Jesus' teachings into a thematic arrangement rather than a chronological one, and so they're showing up in different places at different times. Or Jesus is just repeating himself. He's mentioning again the importance of warnings such as these. Either solution is acceptable. For this reason, though, we've been jumping around in some texts here in Luke 11 and 12 because we've already considered the main content of a lot of the teaching that we find here in these couple of chapters in Luke. In the past couple of weeks, we have observed Jesus' bold confrontation of the religious leaders. Remember, Jesus was invited to eat lunch with a Pharisee, and Jesus takes him up on the offer and uses it as an opportunity to expose the Pharisees' hypocrisy, their arrogance, their defiling influence. Remember, there's a scribe that happens to be at the table as well, and he goes, Jesus, you've gone way too far. You're implicating all the religious leaders in this one. 
And Jesus just turns his gaze at the scribes and says, yeah, I've got words to warn you with as well. He calls them burden creators, wickedness approvers, and knowledge hinderers. Those are fighting words, aren't they? To those religious leaders who thought they were quite the opposite of what Jesus was condemning them of. The scribes and Pharisees react with intense interrogation and further plotting to do away with Jesus. They hope that they can catch him in something that he might say. Jesus then warns his disciples of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He encourages his disciples to hold fast to their heavenly father who cares for them in the midst of all their circumstances. He tells them you're going to encounter persecution and trials and difficulties, but hold on to your heavenly father. He cares for you in the midst of it all. Jesus goes on to expose the danger of greed. He says, be on guard against every form of greed. Even in one's abundance, one's life does not consist of his possessions. And then Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool, which we looked at last time. And he asked the question pretty much this way. Why spend your life amassing goods that you cannot take with you when you die? That's the question before us. Why not instead adopt a truly wise perspective and instead of thinking of the next 30 or 60 years, begin thinking of the next 30 to 60 million or trillion or gazillion years? This is Jesus' point. He also advocates a no-worry policy when it comes to life. What you'll eat, what you'll wear. Life is more than food. The body is more than clothing. If God clothes the grass of the field so beautiful and he feeds the birds of the air, then certainly he'll take care of us who've been made in his image. Jesus counsels his disciples to set their sights upon heaven, to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus' point, adopt the heavenly mindset, otherwise you'll be no earthly good. That's the only mindset that makes us any earthly good, is to have a mindset that's focused upon heaven, focused upon the kingdom of God. We read in Luke 12, 33 and 34, sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves money belts, which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys for where your treasure is there. Your heart is also. Isn't it amazing how much is changed by adopting a heavenly perspective, a Christ honoring philosophy of life, a God's kingdom pursuit. If we're living for the life to come, then we have nothing to fear from men. They can only kill our bodies, but they can't touch our souls. If we're storing up treasures in heaven, then we won't live to hoard possessions because we're not going to believe Satan's lie that life is found in hoarding stuff. And if we trust our heavenly father to take care of us, we're not going to worry. So Jesus then takes the next logical step. In this discourse, by issuing a command, he says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Literally, the Greek reads, be you this way. Be you ones with girded loins and ones with lamps burning. Jesus demands that you be Ready. Having girded loins alludes to the practice of wrapping garments up. Remember, you had long flowing garments in that day. And so you'd literally wrap them up and tuck them into your belt. So that way you could move about freely. I was just in that baptismal gown. You can't move very freely in that. But if I was to tuck it up, then my legs would be free and I could move. Yeah, you didn't know you were going to get a little dance routine from me today. That's as much as you'll get. I'll save you anything else. Perhaps if we were to say it today, we would say instead of tucking up your 
loins, we'd say something like, roll up your sleeves. Get ready for work, Jesus is saying. Be prepared for action. And Jesus uses a second illustration. He says, keep those lamps burning. Keep them well tended to. Be ready at any time of day, even in the midst of darkness. Always be prepared, Jesus says. And to which we go, okay, but be prepared for what? And what does this preparation look like? And why is it so important? Well, Jesus answers those questions with um, a few short parables and a couple of Beatitudes here in Luke 12. And it's parallel over there in Matthew 24. Now, you might ask, and rightly so, who's the intended audience for Jesus' proclamation here, for this command? Who is he warning here? Who is he telling to be ready? Who is he telling to have their sleeves rolled up? That question is no small exegetical question when involved in Bible study. Whether you recognize it or not, you're continuously evaluating whether or not commands are for you or for someone else. When God commands Noah, for example, in Genesis 6.14, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. When we read that, do we instantly go out and start constructing an ark of gopher wood? As far as I'm aware, none of you have. If you have, please come see me in my office. I'd like to talk with you. But this is what we have to recognize here is that we recognize that that command is a particular one to Noah at a particular time for a particular reason. Meanwhile, when God says in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or in earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. We rightly recognize that command is universally applicable to all people at all times, even though it was particularly given to the Israelites on a particular occasion. You see, there is no escaping the question of intended audience. And you'll respond completely differently if you think it's intended for someone else. How many times before have you heard somebody, especially if you have one of the more common names, if they say your name and they're talking to somebody else, you have turned your head. Because by naming your name, you've instantly been drawn to attention, even if they weren't talking to you. And the moment you recognize they're not talking to you, what do you do? Disengage, right? You know, like, oh, whatever the command is, it's not for me. It's not intended for me. And I think there's a lot of people that read the Bible that way. They disengage. They go, oh, that's for someone else. It's not for me. Isn't it interesting that on this occasion, we have a question that comes from Peter right in the middle of the whole text, where he voices that question. He says this, Lord, are you addressing the parable... To us or to everyone else? Who's this for? Is this for us or to everyone else? Or perhaps depending on your translation, everyone else also. Is this for us particularly or for everybody? Jesus answers that question, as is so often the case with Jesus, in an indirect way. Simply put, though, Jesus' answer is to say to him, if I could summarize, yes. Yes. It's for you, and it's for everyone else. So may we all be warned, because ready or not, here Jesus comes. Let's consider three ways in which this announcement applies to everyone. Three ways in which this announcement applies to everyone. Three ways in which this announcement applies to everyone. First of all, this announcement informs the ignorant This announcement informs the ignorant. Recognize here that the whole world is guilty before God. 
And for thematic reasons here, I'm going to be pretty much just jumping up backwards through our text here in Luke 12. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, the one who did not know it, in other words, the one who is ignorant, the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. Now, what did this one not know? Well, the previous verse explains it to us. It's the will of his master. The one who did not know the will of his master. This one, having acted worthy of floggings, will receive but few. So there are some who may be ignorant of their master's will, Jesus says here. And while Jesus explains this will receive little beating, he still indicates that they have acted in a sense that causes them to be worthy or deserving of blows. Here's the question. Is that punishment just? Is it right for a slave to be punished for that which he does not know? Is it right for him to be punished at all? Because, I mean, if he's ignorant, doesn't that excuse him from offense? Scriptures are resolute in their proclamation regarding this. Whether you do it from ignorance or you do it from knowledge, wrongdoing is still wrong. And it merits punishment. Spiritually speaking, sin is sin. And it must come under holy judgment. Remember, there are two factors which must be taken into account whenever considering someone's ignorance anyway, right? Romans gives us some really good instruction to kind of mitigate upon what we understand when we say someone is ignorant. For what God has provided in general revelation, Romans 1, 18 through 23 explains to us, is ground enough for condemnation. God has made things evident about himself just by the sheer fact of creation, by which the whole world is held accountable. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So what have they done? What has rebellious, sinful, fallen man done? He's exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of the corruptible creature. We've erected our own gods for ourselves, idols, which are not worthy of our worship and our adoration. So recognize when we say that someone is ignorant, it's not as if there isn't anything that stands ground for their condemnation. Add to that what's recorded in Romans 2, that God has given men a conscience so that when they sin, they do it with knowledge. Conscience with knowledge. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, this is Romans 2, 14 through 16, these not having the law are a law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So recognize God has made himself evident through the sheer act of creation. He's also gone a step further and given men a conscience such that when they do wrong, they do it with knowledge. But you see, the impact of the fall was to distort man's use of reason and his application of his conscience. We're sinners from birth. We're separated from God. And tragically, by default, we live for ourselves with little consideration of God and his glory. So this warning is instructive. It's instructive 
to the one who claims ignorance. The warning prepares us. It's important because the gospel, we know from 2 Corinthians 4, is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, those in ignorance are informed through gospel proclamation. And certainly part of gospel proclamation includes announcing the certainty of Christ's return. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' first coming. But as Christians, we look forward to his second. We look forward to the return of our king. You see, those who are ignorant have to be confronted with the reality that the king of kings and lord of lords is going to come back. He will return. And just as there are countless prophecies announcing the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate particularly at Christmas, you know, Psalm 2, 7, which declares the divine sonship of Christ. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which prophesies God the Son's incarnation. Psalm 110, 1, which points to the Davidic descent of Christ. Isaiah 7, which prophesied the virgin conception of Christ. Micah 5, 2, which tells that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Hosea 11, 1, that said that Jesus would make a flight to Egypt. And on and on the list goes. And all of those are specifically mentioned in the New Testament as specific prophetic fulfillments regarding the first coming of Jesus. And the prophecies continue, don't they? Not only Jesus' birth and all the circumstances surrounding his birth, already prophesied hundreds of years before, but similarly, Jesus' ministry, his suffering, his betrayal by Judas, his arrest, his being crushed for our iniquities, his, the casting of lots for his clothing, his crucifixion, his thirst from the cross, his being pierced, the fact that none of his bones were broken, and that his death and resurrection, all, all of these things were proclaimed and prophesied in the Old Testament. So it doesn't surprise us to find that God would also include prophecy regarding Jesus' second coming. That Jesus is coming again. And in this note, both the Old Testament and New Testament unite in this proclamation. And Christians throughout the centuries have forthrightly proclaimed in harmony with the Scriptures our belief that Jesus, after he rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he will come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. Recognize that this is part of the ancient creeds of the church. They recognize just how important the second coming of Jesus is. So this command to be ready is instructive because it accords with the truth. Our Lord is coming back. There's no uncertainty about this. It's not a case of maybe it's probable. It is absolutely certain. Just as every other prophecy regarding Christ has been fulfilled, so will this one. Acts 17.30 sounds this sober note. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Next verse. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This call to readiness is meant to instruct the ignorant. But it's also here, this call to readiness has a further purpose. It's been fashioned 
as an announcement that rebukes the arrogant. That's my second point. This announcement rebukes the arrogant. This announcement rebukes the arrogant. There's a solemn warning here. It warns everybody, everyone, do not reject the light that God provides. Look at Luke 12:47. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. So the slave who knowingly, purposefully rejected his master's directives would receive worse punishment. The warning heightens the arrogant slave's accountability. And this principle, friends, has Old Testament roots. Deliberate sins were judged more severely than accidental ones. Accidental sins are still sin. Still must be addressed and punished. But deliberate sins saw a much greater severity of punishment. You can look at this in Numbers 15. Look this up later. Numbers 15, 22 through 31. It's a really great place to see that. Numbers 15, 22 through 31. Basil the Great said this way, When I consult the New Testament, I find that our Lord Jesus Christ does not absolve from punishment even sins committed in ignorance, although he attaches a higher threat to deliberate sins. All sin must see judgment, but deliberate sin sees a more severe one. Luke 12.48 concludes, now, all to whom has been given much, much will be sought from them. And to whom much has been entrusted, more they will request of him. Jesus explains here that God holds us all accountable for the truth that he has revealed to us. With greater light comes greater responsibility. Note, the whole world is accountable to God by the sheer fact of creation and the matter of the conscience. But for those who have had super added to that gospel proclamation, ability to read Bibles and see God's truth and be impacted by it, if they spurn that light, if they push off what God has revealed, they, it carries with it greater consequence. We've noticed this warning in Jesus' teaching ministry before. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, 21-24. He said, Woe to you, Shorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon that occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than you. And then he looks at Capernaum, which is a place where Jesus spent so much of his earthly ministry. And he says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom that occurred in you... It would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the land for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And Sodom is the one we remember famously as seeing the fire of God fall upon that city. Jesus is saying, if they had received the light that I gave to you guys, they would have remained. He says there's bigger consequences coming for your rejection. This fact ought to be sobering for those who flippantly shrug off God's warnings to get ready. J.C. Ryle explains, The day will come when knowledge unimproved will be found the most perilous of possessions. Thousands will awake to find that they are in a lower place than the most ignorant and idolatrous even. 
Their knowledge not used and their light not followed will only add to their condemnation. Reminds me of James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers for you will incur a stricter judgment. Consider the judgment, as Jesus is saying these words to the crowds and his disciples, consider the judgment that would fall on the hypocritical religious leaders of Jesus' day. Think about the judgment that would fall on Judas, who's walking around with Jesus only to betray him six months' time from this. You see, you can be an arrogant rebel while maintaining a facade of allegiance to Christ. I dare say there are people all across the world who perhaps even go to church on Sundays and go through all the rituals and outward signs of what it looks to be allegiance to Christ, but in reality, they're far from Him. Such ones who have sat under such gospel light and have spurned it and have rejected Jesus will see great and severe judgment. And note how this is depicted for the arrogant, for the prideful. It's the fact that Jesus' return, while certain comes at an undisclosed time. There's a sudden nature to the return of Jesus. You see, the arrogant slave operates under a mentality that says, my master will be indefinitely delayed or detained. He says in his heart, my master delays to come. And then what does he do? He begins to beat his fellow slaves and indulges his own pleasures. He begins eating and drinking and getting drunk. He throws caution to the wind. He cares little about others. And he shirks any responsibility he has before his master. He lives for himself. So the master, we're told, will come suddenly on a day when that slave wasn't expecting it. At an hour when he did not know. These wicked slaves will be caught in the midst of their rebellion. Right? Like catching them in the act. And the judgment that comes on them will be swift and it will be severe. Jesus says here they'll be cut in two. And set with the unbelieving, with the unfaithful. Matthew 24 describes it here as set with the hypocrites, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus explains the suddenness of this with the previous parable here in this account. Look at verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to have been broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not... Expect. Now, this comparison that Jesus makes is kind of an arresting one. It's, Jesus is comparing his coming with the coming of a thief. Kind of gives it a memorable nature, doesn't it? And I think it's seen because that analogy is picked up by the New Testament writers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 3, Revelation 16. All passages where the same allusion is made. He's coming as a thief in the night. Obviously, it's not that God is stealing anything, for God owns everything. It's all his. Possible for God to steal something. He owned it all. So what is, what's the comparison here? The comparison is just like the suddenness that a thief comes. He comes when someone's not expecting it. Otherwise, it's really hard to burglarize someone if they know you're there. It becomes something a little bit different on that occasion. Jesus says, I'm going to come at an unpredictable hour. So the only way, how do you get ready for something or someone who comes at an unpredictable time? Anybody have friends or family that kind of show up at unpredictable times? How do you get ready for people who show up at unpredictable times? Always be ready. That's the only way you can, right? If you don't know, have any clue 
The house always has to be clean. <laughs> they always have to be ready if we don't know when they're going to show. And that's the point. Is this, the, the rebel will not be ready. So severe and swift judgment will fall upon them. You know, Noah and his family get into that ark, right? The Lord shuts the door. But there's some time that transpires before the rain starts. They might not have known exactly the exact moment in which God would send the rain. But the fact that they were ready for whatever the Lord would bring meant that they were set when it came. Everyone else who was still frolicking about saw the severe judgment of God come suddenly and severely. The only way you can be ready is if you're always ready, if you're always prepared. So the certainty of Jesus' return serves as an instruction to the ignorant. He's for sure coming back. And the suddenness and undisclosed nature of the timing of the return serves as a judgment against the arrogant. Instruction to the ignorant, rebuke or correction or judgment to the arrogant. But there's a third point I want us to note this morning. Is that this announcement encourages the faithful. This announcement encourages the faithful. Which announcement? The announcement, be ready for Jesus' returning. Up to now, we've only considered the negative repercussions of what happens to those who reject Jesus' summons to be perpetually prepared and to be continually ready. But now we can rejoice in the impact that Jesus' return has on the faithful. What's so glorious about talking about this reality is it serves as a warning to those who reject Christ. So, it's gospel proclamation to those who are lost. But simultaneously, talking about the second coming brings great encouragement to those who are saved. Jesus began his instruction. Look at the very beginning of this, Luke twelve thirty six. He gives a picture of how those who are truly his live. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. The idea is that faithful servants are waiting with expectancy for the return of their master. They stand at the ready. And the, the image here is this, is that master's been out at this wedding feast. Who knows exactly when he's going to come back. But instead of just doing whatever, they stand at the ready, waiting for the moment where he knocks the, on the door to immediately open the door to him as he returns home. The lights are burning. The lamps are burning. And they're ready to open the door when their master knocks. It's this anticipation that fuels their service. They long for the return of their Lord. Note that. Those who are saved long for the return of Christ. And what does faithful and wise waiting look like? What does it mean to be ready? What does that look like? I think that Luke 12:42 gives us an indication here. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? I'll tell you the one who is doing what he's supposed to. First of all, he recognizes himself to be a steward. He recognizes what that means. He recognizes that title and he submits to it. Recognize, steward, not owner. There's my master, the owner of everything. I'm merely a steward. I've been given a responsibility to watch over the resources of my master. I've been granted gifting and ability 
and resources that would be utilized in accordance with the will of my master. How my master would want them to be utilized. And note in particular, it's shown in his desire to take care of his fellow servants, distributing rations at the proper time to the rest of the household. And what a contrasted picture this is to the wicked slave that Jesus described, right? The wicked slave, what is he doing? Beating his fellow slaves, eating, drinking, and getting drunk. He's indulging himself and beating others. Meanwhile, the responsible steward, the one that's found ready and waiting and anticipating his master's return, is found being responsible with the resources and caring for his fellow servants. Faithful, wise, anticipatory waiting doesn't mean the cessation of activity. It doesn't mean you stop doing anything. It means active engagement in our master's business as we look forward to his return. Think of it this way. You're working for an employer. The boss steps away for a while. If he was to return at any moment, what do you want to be found doing? Your job. You want him to come back and see you doing your job. Jesus says here, faithful readiness means doing the will of our Lord. 1 John 2.28 Now, little children, abide in him, listen, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Here's a real good consideration as it relates to sanctification. Think about this. Every day of your life, every moment of your life, you're making a decision. When I want Jesus to return with me doing this. Would I want my master to return and find me engaged in this? Titus 2, 11 through 14, same principle. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Listen, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what it looks like. We need to be reminded of the certainty and the suddenness of Jesus' return for these very reasons. And then Jesus, above and beyond, goes beyond this and says, that there are blessings that come to those who are so found. So often in Jesus' parables, there's some sort of like shocking element of the parable that's sometimes lost on us due to our distance from, you know, cultural distance from the times in which these things were said. But this one isn't very hard to take notice of what's so shocking about what Jesus says. Look at what he says in Luke 12, 37 and 38. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. Jesus speaks of those slaves who are waiting for him even in the second and third watch. There's discussion as to what time of day this is really speaking to. Romans divided the night into four watches, while the Jews divided it into three watches of equal time periods. 
And so if it's the Roman accounting, it would have been somewhere between the 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. time. If it was the Jewish accounting, it would be somewhere between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. But it doesn't really matter because the point is still made, regardless of which one is intended. Only a ceaseless watch will suffice. And then what action does the master take when he finds his slaves waiting for him at these crazy hours in the middle of the night? When he comes home to these expectant slaves, he girds himself to serve? He has his slaves recline at his table? He serves them? Waits on them? I mean, this is an unheard of role reversal. It should be the master who's come home from his trip and who reclines at the table while the servants who have been sleeves rolled up, ready to go, serving him, attending to every whim that he might have. The expected scenario would be in line with Jesus' teaching in Luke 17, 7 through 10, where Jesus teaches, which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, come immediately, sit down to eat. Will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward then you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things that she's commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things you're commanded, you say we're unworthy slaves. We've done only that which we ought to have done. Now that parable is all premised on what would have been very reasonable in that culture. Yes. The slave's out in the field working. When he comes in, he doesn't sit at the table while the master feeds him. No, he continues working. <laughs> he feeds the master. When the master's completely satisfied, then the slave finds a place and eats his food. So after doing all that we're commanded to, we're deserving of nothing. For we've only done that which we ought to have done. Yet here, Jesus explained that his faithful, expectant servants will be waited on by him. What an astounding blessing. He pictures this eschatological reality that all those who are in Christ will sit at his banquet table and will be served by him. Us unworthy slaves. Philip Ryken captures this so well. This reward could only be told by the kind of God who would wear the weakness of his people by taking on the flesh of their humanity, who would strip his robes to wash the feet of his disciples and would serve as their substitute by dying on the cross for their sins. In any other context, it does not make sense. We sing the song every once in a while, that you, my king, would die for me. Kings don't die for their subjects. Subjects die for their kings. But meanwhile, here we have Jesus laying down his life on our behalf. Here we have Jesus taking the role of a servant and serving us at his table. And in Luke 12, 43 and 44, Jesus adds, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. Faithful stewards who have discharged their responsibilities in line with the will of their master, will be rewarded with permanent management of their master's resources. You see, faithfulness in a few things, in the small things, means leads to greater and more permanent responsibility. And we may receive kind of glimpses of this in our earthly lives. 
there's a lot of principles, just normal principles that work that way, right? If a child is able to be responsible for a few things, then we give them a little bit more, and there's kind of that. And if they're not, then it kind of shrinks on in. Same thing happens with employers and employees. Certainly got a good picture of that in Joseph's life, right? I mean, the Lord keeps blessing Joseph's faithfulness in and through all the circumstances that he has him go through. But it will only be perfectly expressed upon Jesus' return. We read this morning from Luke 19. It's demonstrated the faithfulness with minas translated into responsibility over cities at the Master's return. Unfaithfulness meant losing even what you did have and being slain in the presence of your master. When I returned last night from church, my wife told me that she had had a good time playing with our son Joel. I don't know what prompted this, maybe because I had mentioned to her earlier in the week that what the title of my sermon would be, but she decided to play, she's shaking her head no, she decided to play hide-and-go-seek with my son. And so I come home and she's telling me about what she did today, and she says, oh, yeah, and I played hide-and-go-seek with Joel. I said, well, how'd that go? She said, well, I counted down, and then I said, ready or not, here I come. And she walked towards Joel's bathroom and could hear some noise coming from the closet. She opened up the closet, and there she found Joel playing with toys. He'd gotten into the closet to hide and became so distracted with the toys about him that he completely forgot what he was supposed to be doing, getting ready for my wife's arrival. I doubt he even heard her call out, ready or not, here I come. He was completely gone. He was no longer thinking about that at all. How about you? Jesus' return will be the moment that all Christians long for. We cry out, Maranatha, our Lord, come. But it will be the moment that everyone else hopes never comes. It will mean great, irreversible judgment for those who reject Christ. But for those who love Him, it will mean incredible, astounding blessing. Are you perpetually prepared? Are you continually ready for Christ's return? Or are you so inundated with the toys of this world that you're even deaf to this announcement from Christ. Be warned. Don't treat God's patience lightly. While it's still called today, you have the opportunity to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Don't shirk off this warning for no matter where you are and no matter who you are, it's meant for you. Ready or not, Here he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous joy that it is to consider your word. We're so thankful for the warnings of Scripture that they apply to all of us wherever we might lie in this regard. I pray that you would wake people out of spiritual lethargy, out of spiritual stupor, that you would grant them eyes to see that you grant them hearts to believe, that you would grip their hearts with the reality of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is returning, whether they're ready or not. Oh, I pray by your grace, Lord, you'd make them ready. I pray even in these moments that you would draw them to yourself, that you'd grant them repentance and faith in Christ, that they would cry out to you, recognizing their sinfulness, admitting their sinfulness, admitting their inability to save themselves and cast themselves entirely upon Jesus. 
pray that you would save them for your glory even this morning. Lord, thank you for the, this time of year in particular and help us to be ready to announce not only your first coming, but to make declaration regarding your second. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.